0: And welcome again to another episode of Three Plastic Surgeons and a Microphone, where I am joined as always with Dr. Sam Jajurkar, whose Instagram handle is at samjajurkar. Our fellow third plastic surgeon, Dr. Sal Pacella is recovering from arthroscopic knee surgery. And so he will be missing this episode, unfortunately, but we wish him a speedy recovery and he will be back shortly. I'm Sam Re, and my Instagram handle is at bergen cosmetic, And we are joined by our fellow former resident, my former, our former chief resident, actually, Dr. Lawrence Tong, whose um, website is myplasticsurgerytoronto.com. A little background on Dr. Tong. Dr. Lawrence Tong was born and raised in Toronto, and he attended University of Western Ontario and medical school at University of Toronto. He then went and trained with us at University of Michigan Medical Center in Ann Arbor in plastic surgery. And... Um, Since then, he's transitioned after practicing in the United States for a while. Stateside, he went back to Canada, and now he has an exclusive cosmetic surgery practice in Toronto in the Yorkville neighborhood. Dr. Tong is board certified by the American Board of Plastic Surgery. He is a certified specialist in plastic surgery by the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons in Canada. And he specializes exclusively in cosmetic plastic surgery of the face, breast, and body. And we've known Larry for many years and he is an amazing surgeon. He is meticulous. He is super laid back and probably out of the chiefs that I've had, one of my favorite, because he was, he didn't browbeat you. He just showed you how good things could be by the way he did it. And he didn't even have to show, he didn't have to tell you what to do. He just showed it. And then you could see what excellence looked like just by what he did on a daily basis. So with that, I want, we would like to go ahead and put our disclaimer, our verbal disclaimer in for our show before we can Sam.
1: Yes. Just the, the necessary legal business we have to get out of the way. This show is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. This show is for informational purposes only. Treatment and results may vary based upon the circumstances, situation, and medical judgment after appropriate discussion. Always seek the advice of your surgeon or other qualified health providers with any questions you may have regarding medical care and never disregard professional medical advice or delay seeking advice because of something on this show. And uh, I just wanna echo what Dr. Sam in New Jersey says about Larry, amazing surgeon. In, in many ways, just watching him as a more junior resident got me really interested in aesthetic surgery and in many ways was influential in my career. So I'm so excited to talk to Larry as well today. Back to you, Sam.
0: Thank you. So today, this is a talk, actually, I listened to Larry give a couple of years ago at our alumni meeting at University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, and it went over really well. It was probably the best talk that I've ever heard of or seen or read about this subject, and I feel that it was really a value for everyone, not just surgeons, but patients and anyone who has a passing interest in upper lid blepharoplasty, particularly Asian upper lid blepharoplasty, which is a pretty specialized topic. And and certainly there are literally thousands of providers out there that do this, but it's like everything else. There are probably, I think about a million people who know how to prepare a steak, but there are only a few people out there who make it amazingly well. And it's one of those things. Everyone thinks they know how to do an Asian upper lid blepharoplasty, but there are only a few people out there that know how to do it amazingly well. So I'm really happy and honored that Larry decided to agree to come on our show and talk about it a little bit. So thanks very much, Larry. I really appreciate it.
2: Thanks guys. It's a pleasure and honor to be here. Good afternoon to uh, Sam in New Jersey and Sam in Texas, Uh, Sal, sorry you couldn't be here. Hope you get better uh, soon and wishing you a rapid recovery, but you know, very glad to be uh, with friends. This is a a great show and hopefully you guys will uh, be able to get something out of my talk and uh, this talk is a talk as Sam had said before, one that I'd given at one of the Digman meetings a couple of years ago. And I've simplified it a bit, taking out a lot of the very technical things um, and I've shortened it, but hopefully it will still give a very nice overview of uh, what this procedure is about and what it does. All right. If you guys want me to start, we can uh, start going over things. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Sounds great. Okay. All right, great. So first of all, what is Asian blepharoplasty? It's basically a constellation of aesthetic procedures performed on the upper lid with creation of a super tussle crease as the central objective in the procedure. It's interesting to note that this is probably the most common cosmetic surgical procedure that is performed in the world. But because, because it's not as performed often in North America, it's less well understood. And that was certainly something that I was never really formally taught during uh, my residency program, just because there weren't very many patients who were uh, demanding it. And so... When I moved back uh, to Toronto, there's a very large Asian population here, and that's when I started to do that uh, to have to start to learn and to do a lot more of these uh, procedures. And the Asian population is increasing in North America. The affluence of that population is also increasing, so there's going to be increasing demand of this uh, procedure going forward. I predict. Mm-hmm. All right, so. Why do agents uh, perform this uh, procedure? Basically, because it gives an aesthetically more desirable appearance. And specifically, patients will say that the lids look more expressive after it's done. The uh, size of the lid, that's the aperture size, looks larger. Now, sometimes that is a true enlargement of the aperture. Sometimes it's an illusion. The ideals of Western beauty have also had an influence. That's one of the reasons why this procedure um, I think was originally invented, but it's important to note that the procedure is not to mimic an Asian eyelid exactly, but just to take some of the characteristics which are uh, thought to be attractive uh, to the Asian. A supertarsal crease occurs in about 50% of Asians, so that means that there's a, a very large population of patients who could potentially benefit from this procedure. So this is a illustration uh, that I've done, and we should just look at the surface anatomy of the lid first. So this is a patient or an illustration of someone who actually has a supratarsal crease. So let's see if I can, okay. So this dotted line right here is a supratarsal crease. So what is that? That is the horizontal skin fold that occurs when somebody opens their eyes. And when somebody opens their eyes, there's going to be a flap of skin that hangs over that crease and that flap of skin is called the supertarsal fold. So a lot of people get supertarsal fold and supertarsal crease sort of mixed up when they describe it, but the crease is actually where the skin bends and then this fold is the skin that flaps over, flops over it. The most inferior aspect of the fold is called the double eyelid line. So that's this line right here. And that's the, Basically, the hanging part, the most inferior hanging portion of that supratarsal fold. And so, the distance between the supratarsal fold and the lid margin, this space here, is called the pretarsal show or pretarsal space. So, when we do non Asian blepharoplasty and we're removing skin from the upper lid, that is one of the things we're trying to increase or create. Because as a person ages, that skin stretches and droops down and then you're gonna have less pretarsal show occurring. When we do this in an Asian patient who does not have a crease, we're actually creating some degree of pretarsal show where no uh, pretarsal show existed previously. So this is a photograph of a patient who has no supertarsal crease. Uh, this is also variously termed a single fold or a single eyelid. So in comparison, when we look at somebody the same patient, after they've had the Asian bleph done with the crease, now you can see that the pretarsal show exists. She has about mm-hmm. one one to one and a half millimeters of pretarsal show. And in general, the eyes look more expressive and they even look a little bit bigger. Now in this case, they might the eye aperture size might be actually slightly bigger because in the pre-photo hung over the uh, lid margin a bit, making the lid look like it has some drooping or ptosis. It wasn't true ptosis, so we call this pseudotosis where the, where the skin sort of hangs over, but the, the lid function is normal. And overall, the effect is a sort of a brighter, more expressive um, appearance. So, as I said before, this uh, surgery has several different names, so it's double fold surgery, double eyelid surgery, double fold blephoplasty. Those can be generally used Interchangeably. So, when we look at the surface anatomy or the anatomy of the eye, there there are some differences with Asians versus Caucasians. So, with Asians, I've already mentioned that 50% do not have a supratarsal crease. So, this line right here is not present in this Asian patient. There's something called an epicanthal fold, which is this little flap of skin right here, which starts from the upper lid and ends up somewhere in the lower. That flap of skin is also something that's almost only exclusively seen in Asian patients and it's almost never seen in Caucasian patients. And then finally, the upper lids, Asians uh, oftentimes look a little bit more puffy than Caucasian patients, and that's because in some part, the eyes are less deep set than Caucasian patients, but also there are anatomic factors within the lid itself that contribute uh, to the puffiness. So why does a crease occur? Now, this is a this is a cross section of an upper lid on this side, the left side, there's an Asian lid and on the right side, there's a Caucasian lid. So you see, there are these fibers that come from the levator. So this uh, area right here is the muscle. That's the levator muscle, the levator elevates the lid. So when you open your eyes, that muscle contracts and from um, a point on the levator, which is the fusion of the, uh, the septum to the levator, it gives off these attachments. These attachments are anatomical attachments that pierce through the orbicularis and end up joining to the dermis or joining to the skin of the of the lid. And when the levator contracts, those attachments, because they're connected along a horizontal line on the lid, creates that crease in Asians. Those fibers are usually, they're not present in patients who do not have uh, a supratrestal crease. So that's one difference, the presence or absence of the fibers. I had mentioned uh, the septum in the previous slide. So the septum is this structure right here, and it holds a pocket of fat. So this area right here is a pocket of fat. And in a Caucasian lid, this fusion point occurs relatively higher than in the Asian lid. So what that means is that the fat stays in a location that's higher up on the lid. Whereas in an Asian patient, you see the fusion point is right down near the tarsal plate here. That means that the fat that's below behind the uh, septum can sit in a lower spot. And when that happens, the lid can take on a puffier appearance. And oftentimes, just underneath the the muscle layer, there's also a little pad of fat. And that is often a little bit thicker than in... Uh, the Caucasian lid. So those things contribute to the appearance of the puffiness. So in summary here, the difference is basically in the Caucasian lid, the uh, septum uh, sits at a higher point and therefore the fat can sit at a higher point making the lid look less puffy and also there are the fibers, those fibers attachments that come from the levator that go into the skin and that's what's responsible for the, uh, the crease, whereas the Asian lid The fusion point sits much lower, the fat sits much lower, so it looks more puffy, and there's often absent or very few fibers, or the fibers sit very low, causing a crease that looks very low. Sometimes when you look at Asian patients, they'll have a crease, but it's very short distance from the edge of the lid. Some people think that the presence of the fat, because of its location, is what obscures the formation of these fibers. Okay. Finally, something called an epicanthal fold is present on Asian lid. So this is a flap of skin that starts from the upper lid and comes down and joins to the lower lid. And that can make the lid have a characteristic appearance. So it can give a rounded or a blunt appearance. Sometimes it's stronger or less uh, more severe or less severe on the patient. It hides the caruncle, which is the medial portion of the eye. So that it makes the eye look rounded and what we do uh, Asian blepharoplasty. Sometimes we alter this epicantal fold to make it look uh, less uh, visible because it also has implications on how the crease travels as it goes towards the nose. All right. So what is the goal of Asian blepharoplasty? As I've said before, it's not to Westernize the lid, which means that the supertussle crease is created, but it's not usually gonna be as high as a uh, Caucasian lid. So in this photo, you can see that this patient, might be a little bit too small to see on the screen, but she has a crease, but it's very low compared to a Caucasian lid, which is typically much higher. So how do we create the crease? Basically what we're doing is, because patients do not have uh, these attachments or they sit very low, we're actually creating those attachments. And how do we do that? We're making an incision on the skin We're dissecting down to the levator and then we're taking stitches to attach the skin to the levator. So we're surgically creating these attachments and this can be done through uh, the open method, which uses an incision. And that's the method that you'll see described in this presentation. There are other multiple methods that can be done with just using sutures and minimal incisions but the open method is generally the more preferred method because it's permanent and it gives you more flexibility in what you can do uh, with these procedures. All right, so other goals as I said create supertarsal crease, but other goals maybe remove skin, correct asymmetry, which is a is a big thing that we see very often, we'll improve the epicantal folds, if the patient has ptosis, we can we will combine ptosis correction at the same time ptosis is drooping of the lid. So when we plan for these procedures, basically the consultation is very important because the patient has to communicate to the surgeon as to what they actually want. How high do you want the crease? How high do you want the pre dorsal show? Do you want the uh, crease to run in a certain tapered fashion or a parallel fashion as it goes towards the nose and what do you want it to do when it comes uh, to the side? So all these things are important. In my consultations, I use an instrument to simulate a crease for the patient, so they they can see what it would look like and give a, give me some feedback as to what you know what they're actually uh, looking to achieve. And from that, I can formulate a, formulate a plan, figuring out if I have to remove any fat, if I have to do an epicanthoplasty, if I have to remove some skin. How where should I make uh, the decision? So. I'm glossing over the planning, but that's actually very important in the consultation. That's actually a very important part of the, of the process. Because if, if you don't have a good idea of what the patient wants, you're, you're going to be having a lot of problems afterwards.
0: Larry, quick question. If they ask, they bring in a picture and that person does not look like a result that mm-hmm. you can achieve in that particular patient due to anatomy or because the every physically, the characteristics are super different. Is that, are you able to reconcile that with patients?
2: Yes. So that's actually a very important point. And I'm sure that you guys see that a lot when people come in and they show you somebody's nose for rhinoplasty. Basically what I tell them is you can, if you want to show me a picture, I'm happy to look at it and go over it with them. But the main thing is that I always tell them we're not going to be able to get a lid that looks exactly the same as that. And because of that. We're just looking at some of the, the features that a patient might like. If there's a certain height to the crease or the pretarsal show, then I will sort of use that as a guide for, for the planning purposes. If they like a certain way that the epicanthal fold looks, then I'll use that as a guide. But you are correct, Sam, that uh, you know, we can't always get exactly the same In fact, we cannot, can never get exactly the same as when a uh, patient shows us. So we always just tell them, we'll use this as a guide. Don't look at it as something we're going to be able to get. All right. So, uh, moving on. So I had talked about, I had made some terms like tapered crease and parallel crease. So this is an illustration of some of those things. So this is a tapered crease. So the the nose is over here. Tapered crease means that the crease travels medially and then joins in at some point with the edge of the lid margin. This is a parallel crease, where the crease, as it moves towards the nose, never touches. And this is a hybrid crease, some people call it an onfold, where it comes and doesn't touch until the very end. So we asked them about that laterally, sometimes the crease can just follow exactly the, the shape of the lid, or sometimes it can widen a bit. So we have to talk about that, and we, then we talk about the amount of pre-tars will show that a patient wants to achieve. Generally, those three parameters, we can have a rough framework of what we want to achieve with that surgery. So now we're going to go on to uh, the surgery itself. So these are done immediately, preoperatively. So I'll, I'll say hello to a patient. I will know what the patient wants from a preoperative uh, assessment and consultation, but we'll just reinforce that, and then we'll take a bit of time to draw the lines on the lids. Now, this is um, important because uh, if you don't draw the lines properly, then you're flying blind when you do the the surgery. So making the lines very accurate is very important for the process. So I usually do the markings with the patient. on Stretcher in the supine position, I usually have them elevated a bit, maybe 45 degrees. And then to make things consistent, I apply some light upward stretch on the lid. That's to reduce the redundancy because if the skin is very loose from patient to patient and you just mark whatever, five millimeters or whatever, it's going to be different from patient to patient. So you have to get rid of that redundancy, mark the, the incision, just like I remember Samir had said, Dr. Sam had said from a previous uh, abdominal plasty podcast that you guys did to lift up on the skin, or traction on the skin while you're making the mark for the Mm -hmm. plastic. So this is the same sort of idea. Put a little bit of traction on the skin so that where the incision is going to go and you have consistency between patients when you make the markings. We elevate the skin and first put a vertical mark. So an up and down mark at the center of the pupil. So we'll have the patient look straight ahead and make them at the center of the pupil. And then with the skin on stretch, then we'll mark the height of where we want the crease to be. So I put some numbers on the screen here. This is not, not set in stone, but in general, a smaller crease, you'll start at about five or six millimeters above the, the lid margin. Medium is somewhere around seven to eight, and then beyond eight is a larger crease.
0: What do you use to mark, like pen-wise? So I,
2: so I use a surgical marker. I think it's by from Viscott. I have no... Conflicts of interest saying that it's just a, a, a very thin marker. It just works well. It's important to clean the lids with alcohol before you do the marking. First. Yeah. Because if you, if you don't do that and the marker spreads all over the place, it, it just can be a mess once it's all prepped and you can't figure out where your incisions should be made. Mm. All right. So this is an example. So in this photograph, there's a, instead of a I usually use a ruler, but this is with a caliper. So we mark a certain height and then just gradually go laterally and medially to make a line at the height that has been pre-discussed. If you have extra skin, especially in older patients, you have to incorporate some skin removal. And in general, you should try to remove skin such that once the skin is removed, you're going to have a slight amount of eyelash eversion. I do a similar thing when I do upper blepharoplasty, but you have to have a, a set end point when you do the markings so that you can be consistent uh, between patients because removal of the skin has an effect on the amount of pretarsals show. And if you're just making the crease at a certain height, but not regarding or taking into account how much skin you're going to remove, you're not going to get a, um, a consistent result. So I usually try to remove skin so that there's a, a small amount of lash eversion, a- And that's how I know that when I make the incision at certain heights, I will get a certain result. So it's not just marking the incision to make the certain marking the crease incision height that will determine the pre show. It's also necessity for moving skin if needed. Usually one or two millimeters is all that's okay. needed.
1: Is, is the inferior aspect of your skin excision where your fold is going to be? Is that how you design it?
2: That is correct. So the first okay. line is going to be the, where I'm going to base the serpentarsal crease. And then above that line, the small crescent, is the skin removal. And so here's an example of somebody who had their markings done. And it's a little bit hard to maybe discern in this photo, but it's... Usually wider laterally, and immediately you don't want to take uh, too much skin. And then there's these central crosshatch here, which delineates the uh, the central pupil. And then usually there's three or four more around uh, the lid. And that helps me to distribute where the the stitches are going to be placed. We call those the anchoring stitches or the anchoring sutures that will attach the skin to the levator. So, I I do this procedure under sedation. So, I do that because I want the patient to be able to open their eyes at some points during the surgery, usually near the end, so I can take a look at the symmetry and make adjustments. I use uh, local anesthetic in addition to that, half percent, usually about half cc per side. So, you don't want to distort. That's a very important thing, too. You don't want to distort the lid. And when you put the local in, you want to put the same amount on both sides. And then it's important to wait for the epinephrine effect, which is to reduce the amount of bleeding, wait for that effect to occur, which is about seven minutes or more, so that you have the least amount of bleeding during the procedure. Bleeding in the procedure really can affect your ability to perform this procedure.